1910, Porfirio Diaz turned 80 years old. The old lion had ruled Mexico with an iron fist for three decades. He wasn't a dictator, exactly. The strong man was the duly elected president of a republic that was celebrating the centennial of the beginning of its fight for independence from Spain. He was the duly elected president in the same sense that Vladimir Putin is the duly elected president of the Russian Federation. Like Putin, he had stepped away from the presidency for one brief term as his hand-picked successor took the reins. Of course, everyone understood that the hand-picked successor took his marching orders from the boss, who stepped back up to the presidential chair in 1884 and did away with the pretense that he was anything less than president for life. They called his reign the Porfiriato. Diaz assumed the presidency as a revolutionary. He had fought on behalf of Benito Juarez against the French invaders who had established an imperial monarchy in his country in the 1860s. He rebelled against Juarez, demanding that presidents only serve one term. Really. When he was elected to the presidency in 1876, Diaz launched a program of modernization and centralization designed to drag his backward nation into the 19th and then the 20th century. Culturally, the Mexican technocratic elite that came to be known as the Cientificos looked to Europe in art and architecture, in the development of mining, oil, railroads, and industrialized agriculture. Don Porfirio courted foreign expertise and investment, and by the turn of the century, Mexico was a virtual economic colony of the United States. The American scout, prospector, and agricultural entrepreneur Frederick Russell Burnham regarded Don Porfirio as one of the great men of the age, and from his perspective, it's easy to see why. Refining crony capitalism to a high art, the great Porfirian hacendados, owners of vast economically autonomous haciendas, which were giant farming and ranching and small industry enterprises, acquired political power to go along with their economic power, and they bent the law and the tax code to serve themselves at the expense of the middle classes and the peasants. Again, contemporary Russia holds up a mirror. Mexico was dominated by its oligarchs. In the service of the Hacendados, Don Porfirio established a personal paramilitary police force known as the Rurales. Clad in gray uniforms and mounted on excellent horses and crowned with huge sombreros, they cut a vivid figure on the rugged landscape of Mexico. Armed with Remington rolling block carbines and revolvers, they battled bandits and terrorized anyone who dared to resist the oligarchs as they expropriated more and more land from peasants who were forced to work on haciendas, where they pretty much owed their soul to the company store. It might be said that the Porfiriato was good for Mexico and terrible for the vast majority of Mexicans, and by 1910 they were fed up. The revolution is often called the storm that swept Mexico. The mutterings of thunder could be heard years before the storm broke. In his vivid history of the revolution, titled Heroic Mexico, William Weber Johnson describes Mexico 
on the verge of the deluge. Throughout the year, and since the beginning of the century for that matter, there have been warning signs of the coming storm. The one-third of the nation that was Indian existed in misery. The growing industrial working class was a little better off, for hours were long, wages low, 12.5 cents a day, and prices high. A Mexican laborer had to work 12 times as long as his U.S. counterpart to buy a measure of corn, almost 20 times as long to buy a piece of cheap cloth. Workers who tried to improve their lot were shot down by stony-faced soldiers. Peasants who did the same thing were shot, usually in the back, by Diaz's Ruales, one-time bandits whom the dictator had put into uniform. Political democracy existed only in Don Porfirio's index finger. A man to whom he pointed was declared elected. Intellectuals who protested faced exile if they were lucky, prison or death if they were not. If anyone could have read the storm signals correctly, it should have been Porfirio Diaz, the man against whom the storm would soon break. He was an old revolutionary himself, well-versed in the shaping of human unrest to political ends. But his memory of the violence and force that misery and oppression can beget had become dim. His hearing, once sharply attuned to the cries of discontent, had in the years of applause and flattery almost completely gone. The growing murmur of coming violence was, for him, a meaningless jumble of sound. The storm that broke in November of 1910 initiated a decade and more of civil war with shifting factions vying for the presidential chair that Porfirio Diaz had turned into a symbol and instrument of ultimate power. It was a Mexican Game of Thrones, and no fantastical tale could match it for violence, betrayal, and conspiracy. Genuine idealism wrestled with pragmatic and sometimes cynical power plays and rank opportunism, sometimes in the same person. The adage that when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die was never more true. And in Mexico, winning was no guarantee of a peaceful death in bed. In Mexico, you could win and still die. Virtually every major player in the drama went down in a hail of bullets. This series of the Frontier Partisans podcast focuses on three major players in the Mexican Game of Thrones. The muleteer turned revolutionary, turned counter-revolutionary, Pascal Orozco, defender of the Patria Chica, Emiliano Zapata, and bandit turned revolutionary, turned warlord, Francisco Pancho Villa. These men were real-deal frontier partisans of the modern era, Men of desert, forest, and mountain, ace horsemen, crack shots, natural leaders of men, and capable practitioners of partisan warfare. This series does not attempt to be a comprehensive exploration of the political, economic, and diplomatic moves of the Mexican Game of Thrones. For that, I strongly recommend Mike Duncan's 27-episode Revolutions podcast, series number 9 on the Mexican Revolution. It's like a college course on the Revolution and well worth the time invested. Here, I just want to offer a hopefully, 
hopefully cogent overview of this complex labyrinth. And some of this will be fleshed out further in subsequent episodes as our protagonists ride the revolutionary trail. Francisco Madero was the unlikeliest of revolutionaries. In fact, he wasn't really a revolutionary at all. He was a liberal political reformer who found himself riding a tiger. Madero came from one of the richest Tosendado families in northern Mexico, but he had imbibed liberal views while studying in Europe, in, mostly in France, and he sincerely believed in the need not only for political reform, but for social justice. He believed that the middle class, the peasants, and the working class deserved a better life than the one they were living under the Porfiriato, and that preventing the re-election of Don Porfirio could bring a better life into bloom. He wrote an anti-re-electionist book in 1908 that sold like wildfire, and that established him as a leader in the effort to oust Diaz. He wasn't the only focal point for potentially revolutionary thought and action. The anarchist pamphleteer Ricardo Flores Magón and his brothers, far more radical than Madero, had their, uh, their adherents socialists and and anarchists, and Magonista sentiment was also boiling up by 1910. But the revolution, as it happened, coalesced around this unlikely figure of Madero. His advantage was that he was acceptable to a broad range of society. The downtrodden could put their hopes in him, but he wasn't radical enough to alienate the better-off people who just wanted the system to work better for them. He ran for election in 1910 and ended up getting arrested for his trouble. When Diaz declared himself winner for an eighth term in an election that almost everyone recognized as rigged, Madero escaped from jail, fled to the United States, and issued the plan of San Luis Potosí, calling for the overthrow of his regime, and the Mexican Revolution was on. Most of Madero's armed support was in northern Mexico, but uprisings flared up across the nation in Madero's name. One such was in the southern state of Morelos, where a young hotspur of uh, largely Indian heritage named Emiliano Zapata led peasants in an armed effort to recover lands that had been appropriated by large sugar plantations. Madero's revolution triumphed, mostly thanks to the military efforts of a muleteer-turned-revolutionary leader named Pascal Orozco and a bandit-turned-revolutionary fighter known as Pancho Villa. We'll delve into the details of their triumph in the key 1911 Battle of Juarez in later episodes. For now, it's enough to know that Madero won and was soon elected president. Diaz went into European exile, bidding farewell with the words, Madero has unleashed a tiger. Let's see if he can control it. And it didn't take long at all for it to become evident that Madero could not control the tiger at all. When it became clear to Zapata that real land reform was not in the cards under Madero, the guerrilla fighter declared Morelos at war with Madero's federal government. Pascal Orozco, feeling slighted by the man he'd put in office, rebelled and and allied himself with oligarchs 
who wanted Madero out. Villa stayed loyal to Madero and fought against Orozco. Madero had retained the Federal Army and tasked General Victoriano Huerta with putting down the 1912 Orozco Rebellion, which he did. And Orozco fled to the United States. But trusting Huerta was like trusting a rattlesnake. In 1913, Huerta would lead a coup against Madero and have him and his brother Gustavo brutally assassinated. Huerta named himself President of Mexico. Pancho Villa was in exile in El Paso at the time for reasons that we'll get into in a later episode, and when he heard of Madero's assassination, he and nine armed men crossed the Rio Grande looking for revenge. Within weeks, he had a capable raiding force that he built with just absolutely astonishing speed into the most powerful army in North America, famed as the Division del Norte. Villa allied himself with other revolutionaries in northern Mexico, sometimes uneasily, including a, a chickpea farmer turned general named Alvaro Obregón and a Madrista Hacendado named Vinistunio Carranza, who named himself first chief of the revolution. Down south, Zapata read the situation as meet the new boss, same as the old boss, and continued to fight the federales. Orozco returned to Mexico and joined up with his old nemesis Huerta, and a major and savage war got underway. Through 1913 and 1914, Pancho Villa racked up victory after victory with the Division del Norte, culminating in a spectacular and bloody triumph at the city of Zacatecas. And after Villa stormed Zacatecas, Huerta knew that the game was up, and he fled into exile, first to the UK and then to, then to Spain, and then to the United States, where he immediately began plotting a comeback. The victors of the revolution immediately fell out, with Villa and Zapata rejecting the leadership of Obregón and Carranza. Part of the falling out was over differences in revolutionary program, but mostly it was personal. Villa and Carranza hated each other. Obregón and Villa hated each other. And Zapata didn't trust anybody, although he decided that, that Villa was probably all right. The Villista forces and the Zapatista forces joined together to march into Mexico City in December of 1914. And the re revolution was over. And a civil war was brewing. That civil war broke out in the spring of 1915, and it proved to be even bloodier than the revolutionary fighting that had preceded it. Obergon, who had gone to school on the trench warfare underway in Europe, which was a year deep into the First World War at this time, and he lured a temperamental and impetuous Pancho Villa into a series of titanic battles, one of which Celaya uh, was the biggest battle in North America since Gettysburg, and Oberon broke the Division del Norte against trenches, barbed wire, and machine guns. And First Chief Carranza became President of Mexico. Down south, Zapata read the situation as, meet the new boss, same as the other two old bosses, and he continued fighting. 
Villa was reduced to guerrilla warfare. In 1916, he crossed the border, the U.S. border, to raid the town of Columbus, New Mexico, which provoked the U.S. into sending a punitive expedition into Mexico under General John J. Pershing to capture or kill him. The expedition came up empty-handed and returned to the U.S. in early 1917, when British intelligence intercepted and decoded a telegram from German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman to Carranza, offering Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico in return for a Mexican alliance and a potential attack on the U.S., America entered the First World War on the side of the Allies. Carrancista officers lured Zapata into an ambush in 1919 and cut him down. Then Oberon got tired of Carranza and had him murdered. Villa continued his guerrilla war until 1920 when the federal government offered him an amnesty and a hacienda in Durango. The main stipulation was that Villa stay out of politics. In 1923, with Obregón in the presidential chair, Villa was gunned down in Peral, Durango. Obregón got his in 1928, shot five times in the face by a religious fanatic. The revolution was effectively over, though its aftershocks would last well into the 1940s. There were all kinds of spasms of violence through the 1920s. Um, the presidential administration of Lorenzo Cardenas in the 1930s was actually the most revolutionary presidency of the era in terms of, of radical land reforms and the nationalization of the Mexican oil industry. After that, the revolution literally became institutionalized as the PRI, the Party of Institutional Revolution. Mexico would effectively be a one-party dictatorship until Vicente Fox broke through in the year 2000. So the aftershocks of the revolution really did echo for, for decades um, and still do to this day. It was a hugely significant event not only for Mexico. Revolutionary turmoil shaped Mexican immigration into the United States in ways that continue today. The turmoil led directly to America's decisive entry into the First World War. In many ways, Mexico never really fully recovered from the destabilization that the revolution brought, with over a million dead and several million displaced, both internally and externally, Economic and social institutions were destroyed or deformed, and it, it truly was a, a cataclysmic event. The revolution's most famous figures, Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata, are potent cultural figures today, a hundred years after they were gunned down. And we'll follow their dark and bloody trail in upcoming episodes, but first... We're going to take on one of the most enigmatic players in the Mexican Game of Thrones. Pascual Orozco was the key man in the success of Francisco Madero's revolution. His early victories and his triumph in the Battle of Juarez, which Madero didn't even want to fight, 
made the revolution possible. But within a year, Orozco was in a rebellion against the man that he made president on behalf of oligarchs who were opposed to everything that the revolution represented. How did this come to pass? Was Orozco simply a turncoat, opportunist, a pawn of other men, or is there a deeper and more complex explanation for his betrayal of the revolution? And that's the story we'll try to unpick next time as we play the Mexican Game of Thrones. The Frontier Partisans podcast is made possible thanks to the support of patrons on our Patreon page. And uh, I'd like to thank Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike MacGyver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfeger for your support. If you're listening and would like to, uh, to join the brigade and uh, support the Frontier Partisans podcast and the blog, the link to the Patreon page is in the show notes for this episode. I am very pleased to finally be taking this trail into the, the dark reaches of the Mexican Revolution. It's one of the most fascinating episodes in history, and uh, it's particularly interesting to me because I am fascinated by that collision of, of sort of the old-school frontier partisan ethos and the modern world. Uh, it's no accident that uh, the likes of Sam Peckinpah found it uh, fertile ground for his movie The Wild Bunch and, uh, and some of that collision of, of the Old West and the modern world is, is found in the, the video game Red Dead Redemption. Uh, it's a fascinating time in many, many ways and the, uh, the events of the Mexican Revolution, as I said, are... are so complex and and so full of drama and uh, truly an unbeatable tale of a Game of Thrones. So we will uh, go further into that with uh, our profile of Pascal Orozco next time and we'll see you down the trail.